0: Hornet Heaven, Upheaval, Written by Ollie Wickham, read by Colin Mace. Earth Season, nineteen twenty two, twenty three. something isn't right but it's hard to work out what i can't hear it anymore can you no i'm trying my best old boy but perhaps the sound of the crowd is drowning it out george Badenock and albert grover are at the west hearts club and ground on cassio road the home of watford football club in 1922 They're investigating a noise they've been hearing in other parts of their afterlife. A creaking, cracking and splintering sound. There, I just heard it. Watford are playing Gillingham in front of 5,000 spectators. The match took place four months ago in April 1922. George and Albert are revisiting the game from the other side of the astral plane. I definitely heard it. In which case, your hearing's a lot sharper than Fred Pagnum's shooting was last season, old chap. <laughs> there it is again. Ah, yes. I heard it that time. What the devil's happening? I can't see anything causing the noise, can you? George Burdenock glances around, trying to spot anything unusual. Over the years, he's become fond of the Cassio Road ground. It's not one of football's more impressive venues. It doubles as a local community sports ground that hosts fates and sports days, but it has a friendly feel. It has character. It has soul. He can't see anything abnormal going on here, though, just as he couldn't elsewhere within their afterlife. Well, the ground looks faint to me. As soon as he says this, George feels the urge to clarify what he means by fine, He definitely doesn't mean high quality. Take away the cricket pavilion and a couple of cheaply thrown up roofs and the West Harts club and ground is little more than just a field. Today, as usual, much of the crowd is behind touchline ropes, some of them peering over others' heads from portable terracing. There are people in the branches of nearby trees watching the game for free. George used to play professionally for Watford, and he feels that the Cassio Road facilities are a bit too villagey for a team that now plays in the Football League, which means he wouldn't want to use the word fine in its meaning of adequate, either. When I say fine, I mean not falling to bits, he says. Well, in all honesty, I wouldn't mind if it did fall to bits, Albert replies. Ach, oh, Ray, so you're like me. You'd like to see us playing our home games at a better class of venue. One that suits our status. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, George, you misunderstand me. Quite the opposite. I preferred the days 40 years ago, when we were little old Watford Rovers. No pavilion, no stands. I loved it. When we moved from meadow to meadow, playing matches wherever someone would let us. Getting changed on the side of the pitch, waistcoats for go-posts. Well, (laughs) not quite, but you know what I mean. Albert Grover is the grandfather of Henry Grover, the man who founded Watford Rovers with a kickabout in Cassabrie Park in 1881, and is still down on earth. George Badenock, on the other hand, had a career in the game, making 125 competitive appearances for Watford. Their aspirations for the club are really very different, George notes. But he doesn't want to get into a debate about it. The club's own aspirations will reveal themselves soon enough, he thinks, because there's been talk in the last couple of years of the club moving to a bigger and better home stadium. In fact, the editorial in the programme for this very game mentions that plans are progressing well. So he lets the subject drop and turns his attention back to the creaking sound. There, there's the noise again. I think it's getting worse. <laughs> Are you sure it's not just our defence creaking? Or maybe it's Skilly Williams' is back from picking balls out of the net. <laughs> George lets Albert's jokes pass him by. He's getting more and more concerned about the cracking and splintering sounds he can hear. He's starting to think they may be a threat to the very existence of their afterlife. George and Albert pass through an ancient five-bar gate and arrive back in the main part of their afterlife, where everyone rests between going to Watford matches old and new. The two men put their match programs back on a desk that stands next to the gate in a shady patch of woodland. Now they can hear the creaking sound again, much more clearly. George still can't see anything that explains the sound. The trees aren't moving, the ground isn't shifting. He looks out from the woodland towards the distant Casabury Park gates. The rolling parkland appears as serene as you could possibly want in an afterlife paradise. Until... Great Scott, says Albert. What was that? Oh, I don't know. I... Now they start to feel a great shaking as if there's an earthquake. What's going on? Are we under attack? George glances around. The ground and the trees still aren't moving. It's they themselves that are juddering. Everything else is steady. Albert grabs his arm and cries. Something terrible is happening to our heaven. George Badenoch leads Albert Grover to the edge of the woodland. They are vibrating, but whatever force is causing it remains invisible. George looks around. He sees other residents of the afterlife gathering on the parkland in trembling groups. George doesn't regard himself as a man of panic. He was a reliable member of Watford's famous Invincibles team in the 1903-04 season, missing only one game. And he fought in the trenches in the Great War, where he was killed by a shell at the age of 33. He has the courage to deal with this, or so he tells himself, but he can't work out what's happening. He sees other people rushing back through the five-bar gate, returning from old Watford matches. They're clutching each other, scared. This is bad. Very, very bad, Albert says. What's causing this? George finds it hard to come up with an answer while he's shaking and juddering. It doesn't help that the laws of physics have always seemed to apply somewhat unpredictably in their heaven. So he tries to approach the problem from a different angle. What day is it today? Doomsday by the looks. I mean the day and day I don't know. We lost a QPR on Saturday. That was August the 26th, and today's Wednesday, I think. Right, August the 30th, then. Hmm. Haven't we got our first home match of the new season today? Not if the world comes to a violent... Catastrophic end first, we haven't. Jules thinks for a moment, but he can't see any significance to the tape. Then suddenly, a few yards away from them, amongst the trees, he sees something astonishing. He sees a woman rising up out of the earth. Slowly, first her head, then the rest of her. Albert sees the woman too and steps back in horror. Help! Help! Someone help! The dead are rising from their graves! George doesn't jump to the same conclusion. But what he's seeing is definitely not how new arrivals normally materialise in the Watford afterlife. He watches the woman rise up as she's forming from the Earth itself. Her dark hair looks dirty and unkempt. Her clothing looks makeshift, a shapeless hessian smock. Her skin is dry and veined like a fallen leaf. Now she's standing barefooted on the woodland floor. She opens her eyes. She brushes some moss from her face. Then she opens her mouth to speak but stops. She touches her fingers to her lips. She looks confused. She says... Um, hello? The woman stares at the two men and thinks she knows one of them. Yes, she tells herself, that's George Badenock. She recognises him from his three seasons playing for Watford at Cassio Road. She remembers he was a wing half in the Invincible side under Johnny Allgood and later played on the wing. But didn't she hear someone say he was killed in the war? He doesn't look dead. He looks perfectly well. Quite handsome, actually. See, George Badenok isn't the only thing that's strange. Not by a long way. Why has she got earth-stained hands with papery, crinkled skin? And where has this rough clothing come from? She doesn't recognise this version of herself. Nor does she recognise the old man who's standing with George. The one who's just started shouting about the end of the world. He looks terrified. And why can she feel this shuddering when nothing else is moving? She watches George Bidenock coming towards her. Perhaps he can tell her where she is and what's happened to her. George decides to approach the woman slowly so as not to alarm her. The invisible quaking seems to be getting worse. It reminds him of when he was in the trenches when the shells were landed nearby, getting closer and closer. He tries to give off a sense of calm as he walks through the trees towards the woman. She looks about the same age as him, early thirties. And even though she's covered in dirt, she's a fine-looking woman, he thinks. Fine as in Bonnie, he clarifies to himself. He stands in front of her and says, Welcome to the Watford Football Club Afterlife. He waits for a reply. He notices her eyes are taking in the curve of his mouth, his brown eyes, his neatly parted dark hair. Oh, that's where I am. (laughs) George can understand why she might be feeling a bit disoriented. After all, there's not much on view that's obviously to do with football. Yes, some distance away, over on the parkland, there's a former player wearing an old kit, John Isles, a Watford Rovers forward from 1890, is sporting a yellow and red striped shirt. But George himself is in his woolen khaki uniform from the trenches, and Albert's wearing his Sunday best suit. The woman's clothes, meanwhile, George thinks to himself, are, well, you couldn't say they're impressive. Being positive, he'd say they're unpretentious. It's exactly the same as he'd been thinking about Cassio Road a few minutes earlier. We're in Casabri Park, just across the way from the West Hearts Club and Ground. George explains, except that we're in a different dimension from the real world. Okay, I think I get that, sort of. Well, the place looks nice, she says, looking across the parkland towards the gates. Though it might be nicer if I wasn't being shaken like a cocktail in the club bar. George smiles at this. He says, well, we like it here. Not least because we get to go and watch Watford games through that five-bar gate over there. We go to new games as they happen And old games whenever we want Right She says Count me in She holds out her left hand as though she's a princess Wanting her prince to take her hand Despite her dishevelled appearance George takes it and escorts her towards the parkland She feels slightly strange to his touch, he notices Holding her hand, he can sense something beyond her Something that's... It's hard to put into words Something vast and open, like a landscape somehow. He carries on chatting to her, to put her at her ease. He apologises for the turbulence that's buffeting them. Then abruptly, he feels an especially heavy jolt. They both feel it. They look at each other, uncertainly. Then the two of them, still holding hands, start to rise, slowly, off the ground. A few yards away, Albert Grover finds himself several feet up in the air and rising. He looks around in shock and panic. It's not just him. Everyone in the afterlife is slowly levitating towards the sky, individually or in small groups, all at the same speed. He cries out, Today is judgment day. This was foretold. Albert is referring to a passage in the New Testament in one of Paul's letters, known as First Thessalonians. As he floats upwards, Albert shouts out what he remembers. The Bible told of the day when the dead will rise from the earth, and that woman there did just rise from the earth by crikey. He tries to point at the woodland woman, but he finds he can't move his arms. Or his legs, either. He's ascending vertically, with no control over his movement. He shouts, And that's not all! The Bible foretold what's happening now. It said those who are being saved will be lifted up into the sky. A moment later, he frowns at what he's just shouted. Ah! Hmm. Yes, I'd forgotten that bit. Those who are being saved. Hmm. Maybe this is going to be all right after roll by Jingo. Albert stops shouting. He concedes to himself that he may have overreacted a little. On reflection, whatever's happening seems more likely to be salvation than eternal punishment and destruction. What's more, the force that's lifting him up has a tight enough grip of him that he doesn't feel he's about to go crashing back down to the ground. He can relax a little. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Didn't mean to frighten you all. George Badenoch, meanwhile, has stayed calm while he's ascending into the sky. It helps a little, he thinks, that he's holding hands with someone. But he feels awkward that he hasn't introduced himself to the woman who rose up out of the earth. My name's George Badenoch, by the way, he says, charmed to make your acquaintance, albeit in strange circumstances. Me too, she replies. But I know you from before. Really? Oh, have we met? I feel sure I'd remember you. Well, I wouldn't say we've met exactly, but our paths have crossed. My name's... She falters, almost as if she's not used to saying her name. Cassie. Cassie O... George doesn't catch her full name. It sounded as if it was something Irish. Did she say, oh Rowan? But he heard Cassie, all right. And he thinks this will do for now. So, how long have you been a Watford supporter? Since the day I was born. Ha, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. You're seeing your parents handed down their love of the club to you. Oh no, I never had parents. George glances at her dry leaf veined skin. He's aware again of the strange vastness in the touch of her hand. There's a lot that's unusual about Cassie, he thinks to himself. I was born on September the 27th, 1890. I remember it well. The three sergeant brothers played for Watford that day. Alf, Alec, and Freddie. And Walter Coles scored our only goal. George struggles to believe this. How could a normal human being remember what they saw on the day they were born? He's about to ask how this is possible when suddenly they stop rising. Everyone else comes to a halt too, high above the parkland. They all hang in the air for a few seconds. Ach, what's next, I wonder. Fingers crossed this isn't where gravity takes over again. Now they all start moving, gently, at the same height, in a direction that seems to be southeast. George hears Albert shout, May the Lord preserve our souls! Where are we going now? The residents of the Watford afterlife are being transported horizontally through the air, in fixed formation as a squadron they're moving slowly and steadily high above the landscape over to their left they can see the town center no one has any idea where they're heading now they're passing above the west hearts club and ground it feels odd to have a bird's eye view of the place george thinks to himself then he hears albert call out well i never look down there by jingo they're putting the place back the way i prefer it. George peers down more closely at the Casio Road ground. He notices a stand on the pavilion side is missing. And so is the roof of the park end stand. He's taken aback. The stands were still in place at the last home match against Gillingham in April. The game he revisited with Albert only a few minutes ago. What's happening down there now? Hopefully they'll get rid of the pavilion too. And those awful touchline ropes. Eh, George? George is puzzled. Why would Watford be dismantling their home ground? It looks bareer now, as if it's lost the character it had. He wonders what Cassie thinks. He points to the sports ground below and says to her, Can you see? Two of the stunts have been removed. Yes, painful. This strikes George as an odd choice of word. But I've got plenty of happy memories of the place. I remember our first ever Southern League match when we beat Wickham Wanderers 5-0. 1896, that was. And I loved that 4-3 win over Luton Town in 1903 when you scored one of our goals. George is delighted, she remembers. He scored a fair few goals for Watford at the Westarts club and ground, but that one against the mob from up the road is one of his favorites. Then there was our first home match in the Football League against QPR. Two years ago, our first 10,000 crowd all squeezed in somehow. That was a great day. Though I've no idea how everyone could actually have a view of the game. George remembers this particular occasion less fondly. It was a day he realised Cassio Road wouldn't be a good enough home for a successful Football League club. However much personality it might have. But then he has a thought. Maybe the removal of the two small stands is just the start of a redevelopment of the site. He wonders what this might involve. Maybe the club has decided to replace the stands with huge banks of earth, deep and tall, with railway sleeper steps all the way round the ground, so that the place can accommodate thousands more supporters. He likes the idea of this. It would be ambitious, but it would finally give the town a stadium fit for first-class football. The thought pleases him. Then he thinks, if they really are redeveloping the ground, Why haven't they started construction? It's the first home game of the new season today. He hears Albert call out. I'd like to see it stripped back to being a meadow. Just like the old days. With added buttercups. George half smiles. He gets Albert's point of view. The affection that football supporters have for their clubs often stretches to include the place they first saw their team play. But George is the kind of supporter who values progress more than romantic sentiment. In his view, now that Watford are in the Football League, they need a stadium with a large capacity so that they can maximise the gate money they'll get when they're drawn at home in the cup against a big club. Then they'll be able to invest the cash in trying to rise higher up the Football League. He says to Cassie, are you the same as Albert? As a meadow, what you'd prefer? Or maybe you'd like Watford to have a purpose-built home ground? A bit less squashed would be nice. I wouldn't want a stadium so big I'd feel lost. Who'd want a ground that's soulless? This is a good cautionary point, George thinks. He tells Cassie how, at the Gillingham game, he heard someone in the crowd talking about the stadium that's about to be built down the road at Wembley Park. It'll be able to hold more than 100,000 people, apparently. It's being built especially for the British Empire exhibition and the plan is to demolish it afterwards. That police will never develop a sword, George says. It's no way to treat a stadium at all. I hope we're not being taken there, Cassie replies. Where are we going? Any idea? Three minutes later, the airborne fleet of deceased Watford supporters passes over the cemetery that lies to the south of the Cassio Road ground. The cemetery distracts George. He wonders, with sadness, whether Cassie and other residents of the afterlife are looking down on their own graves. It wouldn't be an easy thing to cope with. He gazes down at the plots and headstones. He's fairly sure he wouldn't have been buried in Watford himself. More likely his body is in Canada, where his family were living when he died. That's what he wanted anyway. What he doesn't know is that he has no known grave. George Badnock's remains are in France somewhere in or around the village of Givenchy, not far from the Belgian border. In 14 years' time in 1936, his name will appear on the War Memorial to be built at Vimy Ridge, roughly a mile from where he fell, and a long way from here on the west side of Watford. Ah, this could be a little bit morbid for some people, he says to Cassie as they look down on the cemetery. How are you feeling? Um, I don't know. "'Overall? Unusual, if I'm honest?' she replies. He isn't sure what she means. It's another slightly mysterious answer, but then just beyond the cemetery they stop moving. Everyone stops. For a few seconds they're suspended in the air. What happens now? (laughs) Ah, I don't know. Where are we? Well, if I remember rightly, this road is called Vicarage Road. There used to be a recreation ground somewhere along here, but I don't see it. Wait. Oh. Wonderful. What? That's fantastic. Look, down there. George points down to where the recreation ground used to be. In its place is a brand new football stadium. The residents of the Watford Afterlife, who have travelled a short distance from Cassaby Park to Vicarage Road high in the sky, have now spotted the new stadium below them. They're calling out to each other in excitement. Look at that, that looks brilliant, says Stanley Roberts, who joined the Afterlife in 1901 after Watford survived their first ever relegation battle. Can you see it, Archie? Yes I can, Mr Stanley Roberts. Replies sixteen-year-old Archibald Enfield, who arrived the same year. The rake of the banking at this stadium will give spectators a much better view than at Cassio Road. I would estimate the C value of the sight lines at close to four and three-quarter inches, which is optimal. Down below, the green rectangle of the pitch shimmers in bright sunshine. Giancarlo Forente, the first man to arrive in the Watford afterlife, il primo, says to his wife. Is this for us, Johnny? A new home? I think it is, Carlo, Johnny replies, and it looks wonderful. At the far end, behind the goal, one of the two stands from Cassia Road has been rebuilt. To the right of the pitch, the roof of the other stand from the old ground has been used to create a new structure that's much more impressive. It's been installed on banking that rises up towards the buildings of the Union Workhouse and looks down from more of a height than at West Hearts. We've only gone and moved and taken bits of the old place with us, Stan Roberts says. It'll still feel like home, but much better, much, much better. (laughs) Behind the near goal there's a steep, deep, open banking that extends the whole width of the arena and wraps around the corners of the playing area. Archibald Enfield says. I would estimate the maximum spectator capacity to be 34,098. Best of all though, on the left hand side of the pitch, there's a large, brand new grandstand set back from the pitch with a terraced enclosure in front. It's the latest design and properly grand. Giancarlo Ferrenti sighs happily and says, we are the set for a marvellous future. Now the residents start to descend slowly from on high. In unison, they touch down on Vicarage Road on the corner of the new ground, outside the Red Lion pub, the new location for their afterlife. They find they can move freely again. Bursting with excitement, many of them run towards the tall wooden fence that surrounds the stadium. As they look for a way in, they see a beautiful ancient turnstile just down Occupation Road. George Badnock is thrilled too. From what he's seen in the ground so far, the scale should match Watford's status as a fully-fledged football league club. He can't wait to explore the place and get a proper feel for it. He lets go of Cassie's hand. He bows to her. He gestures for her to step forward towards their new home. Well, thank you. My pleasure. But aren't you going to carry me over the threshold? George laughs. He's delighted with how things are turning out today, with the move to the new ground, and with Cassie. He scoops her up in his arms and takes her towards the ancient turnstile. But not everyone's happy. A few yards away he hears Albert Grover muttering, I hate modern stadiums. They've got no soul. Or buttercups. What an unsightly erection. George and Cassie enter the ground. Once inside, they walk along the top of the banking at the Vicarage Road end. A few moments ago, outside the stadium, they found a hut stocked with every Watford programme ever, including the one for today's first match at the New Ground against Millwall. Then they discovered that an ancient turnstile at the top of Occupation Road would give them access to the match. The new system is definitely an upgrade on a desk and a five-bar gate in a woodland, George thinks. Now, sheltering from the rain at the game, they stand beneath one of the trees that line the back fence above the Vicarage Road end goal. Together, they contemplate the vista in front of them. Look, down at the far end near the corner flag, where the banking isn't so steep, says Cassie. They've brought across the portable wooden terracing we had at the old ground. I like that. Aye, it's quaint, says George, but I'd expect something more substantial in due course. Ach, imagine if they turn this whole end into concrete terracing. It'll be amazing. And look at the grandstand, says Cassie, pointing. They've painted black and white stripes on the front wall to match the team's shirts. That's a lovely touch. Aye, and look how there are good solid railings all the way round the playing area. Not just ropes. We must be settling here for the long term. That's a relief. Moving home has been quite an upheaval today. We can be here for years, Cassie. This place can take the club to the next level. I can envisage Division 2 football here. Division 1 even. Imagine. Watford Football Club in the top division. Playing the best teams in England. Right here. In our beautiful new home. Says Cassie, wiping away a tear. I'm going to love it here, she says. Me too. George feels moved to take Cassie's hand again. They stand together in contented silence for a while, and George reflects on what Cassie has just said she likes about the place. He starts to warm to her way of seeing the ground. The four sides are all different, which you could see as a bit hotchpotch, but it feels right for Watford. The stadium suits a town club rather than a big city club. It's definitely a step up from West Arts, and he's glad it doesn't reflect any overambition. He certainly wouldn't have wanted the club to gamble its future on a much more expensive construction. But, at the same time, he's also excited by the new arena's potential. He guesses there are about 8,000 people in the ground at this midweek fixture on a rainy evening, and there's room for plenty more when there are bigger games in better weather. There's also room to build more stands. Bigger stands. Vicarage Road could grow. It could be Watford's home for a hundred years or more, he thinks. For a moment or two, he ponders the idea of Watford supporters coming to Vicarage Road in 2022. The stadium will have given them any number of thrilling matches and glorious victories by then. They'll have memories they treasure, individually and as a community. Vicarage Road will be a place where everyone feels they belong. A place they love. But right now, in 1922, all that is yet to be created. It's all just starting. It's starting, Cassie says, seeming to echo George's thoughts. She's pointing to the enclosure in front of the grandstand. George sees a gate in the railing being held open. A dignitary in a suit and a hat boots a football onto the pitch. The crowd cheers and Watford's players run out for a league game at Vicarage Road for the very first time. George looks at Cassie and gently squeezes her hand. This is the start of something amazing. I'm sure of it, he says. Me too, Cassie says. Goodbye, George. It takes George a moment to process this. Goodbye, but thank you and farewell George watches her start to sink downwards. She's still holding his hand, but it's as if she's dissolving into the earth, banking beneath them, slowly. First her feet, now her legs. Cassie, what's happening? She's submerging into the earth, a reversal of the way she emerged in the woodland. George starts to pull on her hand to try and save her. She smiles at him and shakes her head. I'm where I need to be. George drops to his knees. Half of her is back in the earth. I'll always be here, George. I'll look out for you. George wants to stop wherever's taking her from him. But then suddenly, wordlessly, he understands. He understands who she is. What she is. He lets her hand slide from his. Goodbye, Cassie. His mind has pieced it together. Her brief appearance spanned a moment at the club were changing home grounds. And the answer was always in her name. The name he didn't quite catch. The name he thought sounded Irish. It was the name of a place, not a person. Goodbye, Cuss Road. he says. He watches her disappear from view into the earth. She is a spirit. She is the soul of Watford's home grounds. And she is transferred to her new home. After the match, an ill all draw, George bumps into Albert Grover on Occupation Road outside the ancient turnstile. Ah, there you are, Albert. Feeling any better about the new stadium now you've been inside? Well, I have to admit the new grandstand is extremely well appointed by jingo, and the ability to accommodate as many as 5,000 people under cover is undoubtedly a good thing in inclement weather like today's. So. A change for the better, you'd say? Hmm, well, yes. (laughs) I'd like to see a goal at some point, though. (laughs) You'll be seeing plenty of those over the next few years and decades. There'll be all kinds of moments that'll make us fall in love with this place. I truly hope you enjoy the ride, Albert. Well, thank you, Georgie. I think I will. Just after the team ran out, I began to feel the place was already starting to grow on me. George smiles and thinks of Cassie. He wonders whether to tell Albert what happened, but reckons it would sound too strange. He decides to tell no one. He says, the police definitely has Saul. Absolutely. No doubt about it, old boy. Anyway, where's that lady friend of yours? You know, the, uh, well, the, uh, that weird woman. The one who came out of the ground by Jingo. Ah, uh, she's still around the place. She'll always be with us, Albert. I see. But, um, who is she? Did she tell you her name, George, old boy? She said it was Cassie. But I think she'll be changing it now. What? Changing her name? Extraordinary. From now on, I imagine she'll be known as Vicky. Or maybe just. Vic. The End. Upheaval was written and produced by Ollie Wickham. It was read by Colin Mace. For more information on the Hornet Heaven stories, please visit hornetheaven.com. For more information on the centenary of Vicarage Road in August 2022, please visit watfordfc.com. Thank you for listening.